Let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, the second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 5. And we will be expounding one verse this morning, verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, but I would like to begin reading it, verse 11, so that its entire context is obvious to us. Very familiar passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let us bow together in prayer. Almighty God and our Father, we come before you in praise of your sovereign grace, asking that the word of the Lord may have free course into our hearts and that it will transform our lives. Help us to reverence your word, to bow under the authority of your word, and may we understand better our Savior's great love for us before coming to this table, having been together saturated in this text. May those who are here today who do not know the Lord Jesus, may their hearts be opened by the Holy Spirit to receive the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. This is the word of God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now let's look again at this verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Before coming to the Lord's table this morning, let's dwell together on the most glorious and central fact of our faith, that Christ was our substitute upon the cross. Our text, 2 Corinthians 5.21, comes in the midst of the most comprehensive of Paul's statements of the gospel. 
He makes clear in view of his detractors the nature of the gospel and that reconciliation is at the heart of his teaching. Verse 21 is the way in which reconciliation between God and man has been accomplished. That reconciliation be accomplished required that Christ be our substitute. As we have it in verse 14, one died for all and therefore all died. Or in verse 15, him who for their sake died and was raised. It should be no surprise that this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross for his people comes under constant attack throughout history and in our own day. Satan hates the blood atonement. Many do not even believe that crime should be punished in our day, and certainly there is no place within their thinking of sin against a holy God deserving his infinite displeasure. Men are willing to have a cross so long as it is severed from its real meaning, God's wrath on sin and the punishment of God's own Son rather than on his people. People of God, my dear flock, let nothing, no one drive you from this. Here is our only hope in life and in death. We have no hope apart from the substitution of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Now, our text is about this substitutionary death, Christ in our place. And it is my goal to present as clearly as I can from this text the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. For a substitute to be able to atone for our sins and reconcile us to God, three things were needed. And I want you to see those three things in verse 21. First, For one to be a substitute for the people of God, for us sinners, there must be absolute purity. So the first word is purity. There must be purity. You see it here in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Absolute purity. The substitute must be absolutely pure having no sin. Now why? The very issue is sin. The cross has significance not only for us, but for God. The cross is actually Godward before it is manward. How can God save sinners and do so justly? Well, you say, well, he'll just forgive. No, certainly not. He will not simply and cannot simply forgive because he is a God of justice, and his justice must be met. Sin deserves eternal punishment, and that punishment must be meted out. And this means nothing to someone who suppresses the truth of God as holy and just, who believes that man is not a sinner. You find that all around us, people who do not believe that man is a sinner, and yet without this we cannot understand the gospel of Christ. In Islam, for example, there is no belief that man is a sinner. Man sins, according to Islam, But man is not a sinner fallen in Adam, and they believe in the perfectibility of man. But the Bible teaches us that man in Adam has fallen and that we are all sinners in him. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards put it beautifully, if the obligation to love, honor, and obey God is infinite, then sin, which is a violation of this obligation, is a violation of infinite obligation, and so is an infinite evil. Because God is infinite, 
Any sin against an infinite God is deserving of his infinite displeasure. You know, our fathers did not shave off the rough edges. Their Christianity was more robust than ours, and they were constantly pointing out, as they should and we should, that if we're going to understand the gospel, we must begin with the truth and reality that we are hell-deserving sinners. Again, Edwards says, If it be God's glory that he is in his nature infinitely holy and opposite to sin, then it is to his glory to be infinitely displeased with sin. The honor of the greatness, excellency, and majesty of God's being requires that sin be punished with infinite punishment. So, here we are, sinners fallen in Adam. We cannot pay the price. We need a substitute, and we need a perfect substitute, one who is sinless, absolutely pure. Who could pay the price of sin? It's the Son of God, Jesus our Lord. Jesus, who said in John 8, which of you convicts me of sin? In 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26, he is holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And so the scriptures comprehensively remind us that our sin bearer, the Lord Jesus Christ, is himself without sin. Only he could obey the law that we broke. Only he could pay the penalty, the debt that we owed to God for breaking his law. And only he could endure God's full wrath in our place. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. The hymn writer is absolutely right. Only our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who is without sin, who assumed human nature, could save us from our sin. Born of the Virgin by the Holy Spirit, he is impeccable. He never sinned. He was incapable of sinning. He never once broke the law of God. He was a lamb without spot and without blemish. He never needed to bow the knee as you and I do, saying, Father, I have sinned. He had no personal internal acquaintance with sin, but we do. And therefore, we need a sinless substitute in our place. Again, listen to Edwards. The sacrifice of Christ is a sweet savor because as such, it was a great honor done to God's majesty, holiness, law, and a glorious expression of Christ's respect to that majesty. That when he loved man and so greatly desired his salvation, he had yet so great respect to that majesty and holiness of God that he had rather die than that the salvation of man should be an injury or dishonor unto those attributes. The first thing required of someone to take the place of sinners is absolute purity, and that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Search your heart, my friend. See there your own sin and depravity. See your deep need of a substitute who is sinless. Look within your heart, within your soul, and see that you cannot save yourself from your sin and cast yourself completely upon Jesus, the substitute for sinners. But the second thing required of the one who would be substituted in our place 
is that he has the ability to suffer vicariously. And so vicarious suffering. That is to say, in the place of sinners, suffering. You see that in verse 21. Look at it again. For our sake he made him to be sin. For our sake he made him to be sin. Now that's suffering, isn't it? For the holy, just Son of God to bear in his own body and soul the sins of his people is suffering beyond comprehension. He made him to be sin in his suffering for our sins. He was never morally a sinner. But in God's eyes, as he bore the sin of his people on the cross, he was sin itself in the Father's eyes as our sin bearer. How was he made sin? That's what the text says. For our sake he made him to be sin. How was Christ made sin? Well, the answer is that great word, imputation. We find it in verse 19. That is Christ... That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, now that's the word impute, not imputing their trespasses against them. And so he did not count or impute our transgressions against us. But in verse 21, he did count or impute our transgressions against Christ in our place. We are accepted as righteous, that is, perfect before God's law, sinless legally in his court, perfectly accepted because Christ was accounted a sinner in the sight of God. Again, not morally, but our sins laid to his account by imputation. In Galatians 3.13, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God did this. This is offensive to man. We will not have this slaughterhouse religion. This is offensive to the pride of man. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. You know, it was Harry Emerson Fostick, the great liberal preacher, the early 20th century, that came up with this term, slaughterhouse religion. It was a opprobrium that was cast upon Bible-believing Christians. Oh, you believe in slaughterhouse religion, the substitutionary atonement. His present-day followers are saying the same thing. This idea of substitutionary atonement is very offensive, they tell us. People don't like it. Feminists oppose it. Let's get rid of substitutionary atonement and let's use other models instead. But when you present as the core of the atonement other models, you rip the heart out of the gospel, the good news of Jesus as the Savior of sinners. From where does this come, this opposition to substitutionary atonement? It comes from the very reason that we need a substitute. It comes from our sinful hearts. We may not allow what appeals to the natural man to determine our doctrine or our methods. What does the Bible say about our hearts? Colossians 1.21 says we are alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. James 4.4, whoever wishes to be a friend to the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3, says that we are sons of disobedience by nature, children of wrath. Romans 8, 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. Of course the natural man does not like the cross. That is why we need the cross, because we are sinfully rebellious against God. Now, my friends, this is fundamental. And your pastors, your pastors will not trim this one whit. This modern nonsense will not enter this pulpit. We believe the old doctrines of grace. And the thunder of God's law cracked over the head of the Savior in our place. And the lightning of his judgment hit him, struck him in our place. Why? Because all of the sins of all of God's people through all of the ages were imputed to his account. And God the Father looked on Christ as seeing the sins of his people punished him in our place. And that is why he cries from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God the Father sees our sin on the great sin bearer and has poured out his wrath upon him. This the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned from all eternity. Now, substitutionary atonement is essential. And the way in which Paul the Apostle puts it in this verse is, look again at verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin. Now, that's a good translation, but I think, frankly, it could be stronger. Huper hemon, that little preposition, huper. The heart of substitution is found in the preposition. The preposition means instead of. It means in the place of, as it is used here. For example, this is the preposition used in Galatians 3. Christ becoming a curse for us. That is to say, instead of us, in place of us. Do you remember when Caiaphas, the high priest in John 11, says of the Lord Jesus in 1150, it is better that one should die for the people? That's the preposition that he uses. Huper, for the people, instead of the people, in place of the people. Set aside substitutionary atonement, you set aside the core of what the Bible teaches about the cross. Set aside substitutionary atonement, and we are all lost if we do not have a Savior who died in our place. And so the biblical doctrine is, in my place condemned he stood. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Again, listen to Edwards. Christ, as it were, spent himself for us. Though we were enemies, yet he so loved us that from love to us, he had a heart not only to look at our things, but to spend his own things for us, to forego his own ease and comfort and outward honor and to become poor for us. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me, Romans 15, 3. And not only so, but to spend himself for us, to spend his blood, to offer up himself a sacrifice to the justice of God for our sakes. 
Never allow your familiarity with these truths to bring about a coldness to this doctrine, but see it as your very life. Christ bore our sin and He took the penalty of the law, which is another way of saying, Christ bore my hell. You know, the doctrine of hell is very unpopular. The doctrine of hell is denied, of course, by liberalism, increasingly denied by evangelicals. And sometimes we find evangelicals saying, yeah, we believe the doctrine of hell, but we apologize for it. And so they say in a pulpit something like this. Now, we find in our text a teaching about hell. You know, I really wish it weren't there, but it's there, so we have to believe it. They apologize for hell. My friend, to apologize for hell is to apologize for the justice of God. It is to apologize. Forgive me for saying God is a just God. I'm sorry I have to say that God is just and hates sin. That's what it means to deny the doctrine of hell. Take away hell, you take away God's justice. Take away justice and you take away atonement by which God the just can accept us sinners. But there's a third thing needed. If one is to be a substitute in our place, he must be pure, absolutely pure. He must be able to bear the wrath of God, to suffer for us vicariously. But the third thing is this. He must be able to produce merit for his people. Merit. That's the third word, merit. Look at the text again. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, and this is the merit, we might become the righteousness of God. We have no merit. The wages of sin is death. We have no righteousness of our own. We are by nature utterly condemned at the bar of God's sovereign justice. But Christ provides for his people the righteousness and the merit that we need. We actually then become the righteousness of God. Again, not morally. Christ did not morally become a sinner, but he became a sinner by imputation, declaration. Our sin placed upon him, on his record. And therefore we are made righteous by declaration. Christ's perfect record imputed to our account in God's court of law. That's what it means in this text. That we are justified, declared right in God's sight. In our place, in our stead, Christ was condemned that everyone who believes in him, if you believe in him, that everyone who believes in him should be righteous in the Father's court. Christ's righteousness imputed, transferred to us, constitutes us righteous so that we who believe in Christ are perfect in the eyes of the law. There I was in my sin, completely and totally depraved, fallen in Adam, a sinner, not only sinning, but in my heart, in my life, in the totality of my being, a sinner, no hope before the justice of God. Christ took my sin. Christ imputes his perfect record, his righteousness, and now I am completely and utterly accepted in the sight of the Father. John Owen, the great Puritan, says, 
There is not anything to charge us with. That which was is taken out of the way by Christ and nailed to the cross, made fast there, yea, publicly and legally canceled, that it can never be admitted against us as evidence. What court among men would admit of an evidence that has been publicly canceled and nailed up for all to see? So Christ has dealt with that which was against us. Praise God! No longer in God's court of law is any sinner who trusts in Christ seen in his sin, but is accepted in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What then was necessary? If one were to substitute himself for you, what was necessary? He must be absolutely pure. He must be able to endure vicarious suffering by bearing the wrath of God in your place. And he must be able to grant the perfection of his merit for his people. And all of that Christ has done for you, believer. That's that's the glory of your Savior. That's the loveliness of Christ. That's the beauty of the cross. Now, the great theme of this section of Scripture is reconciliation. How can God who is holy accept us? How can man who is sinful be reconciled to God? And the answer is that God does not impute sin to those for whom Christ died because the Father has imputed our sin to his Son in our place. Now, our fathers had names for this. They spoke of vicarious atonement. They spoke of penal substitutionary atonement. They spoke of the satisfaction of Christ, Christ satisfying the wrath of God against us. And those are wonderful expressions that should never leave the vocabulary of the church. And yet, in a letter to Christianity Today, May 2012, an assistant professor from Liberty University, and you think that's a pretty conservative place, right? Assistant professor from Liberty University writes this, I quote, Remove the eisegetical theory that God poured out his wrath upon Jesus and replace it with God's abiding love for his son, and maybe young pastors will embrace the substitutionary atonement. Now, I don't know if you caught all of that, so let me unpack it. He says that substitutionary atonement, what I've been preaching to you this morning and what we preach all the time and should because it's the core of the message, he says it's eisegesis. That is, he's saying we're reading it into the text. He says it's a theory, you see. Get rid of that theory. The theory that God poured out his wrath upon his son, isn't he our propitiation? Doesn't that mean wrath bearer? Does not Isaiah tell us it pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief? And like the old liberals, this man is working with a dichotomy between wrath and love. But what really astounds me is that he says, if you remove this idea of God pouring out his wrath, this theory of God's pouring out his wrath upon Jesus, then young ministers are more likely to accept and preach the substitutionary atonement. My friend, get rid of this and there is no substitutionary atonement. That against which the professor complains is substitutionary atonement. And this is happening in churches all around us. 
So Joanne Carlson Brown says, quoted in another Christianity Today article, the deity of our atonement, the God that we're preaching this morning, is a, quote, bloodthirsty God. And then she says, we, listen to this, we do not need to be saved by Jesus' death from some original sin. We need to be liberated from this abusive patriarchy. Well, if the Holy Spirit ever convicts Joanne Carlson Brown of her sin, she will see her need of a substitutionary atonement. Do you see it? People of God, do not cave in on this. Rather, let us cling to the cross. Let us be clear and outspoken on its necessity. The old theology was true. Let us proclaim it. We are debtors, my flock. We are debtors to free and sovereign grace through the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. And this is a day of doctrinal decline, and, and it's an anti-creedal day. But give up on this, and you give up on the gospel. Only sheer pride will give up on the cross, as represented by the apostles and our Calvinistic fathers. And I will not trade the old preaching for this modern drivel for all that the world has to offer. You, therefore... Go from this place, go into the world this week, and tell it out. Tell it to your children, tell it to your friends and your co-workers, tell it to your fellow students, tell it out. Forget all the formulas, just tell out the whole gospel, because the Lord works when his gospel is spoken to gather his people. And many around us have never heard how we need to hear the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Christ so that in this service this morning if there is someone here let me tell you you don't have purity you can't suffer for your own sin in a way that will pay the debt except for eternity and you have no merit you need Christ the pure son of God who suffered in the place of sinners who can by his death grant the perfection of his merit to his people All of the sins of God's elect were transferred to Christ in whom our sin was fully condemned and complete and final atonement was accomplished. As some of the older theologians put it, we confess, and this is very beautiful, the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ's spotless humanity presented to infinite justice upon the altar of his divinity in all the flames of his transcendent love the personal and all-perfect obedience of our grand Emmanuel to the Holy Law, performed in the room instead of His people, accepted for them and imputed to them by the God of all grace, and their free, full, and everlasting justification by it in His sight. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oh, for all the wealth of the world, do not give this up. Let the world scorn us. Let the world hate us. Let it hate our message. Let it heap opprobrium upon us. But let us say, there is only one hope in life and in death for sinners, and that is Jesus Christ, who obeyed the law in the place of sinners and went to a cross and paid in full the debt we owed. There is only one hope, the substitution of Christ in our place. And God's people said, Amen.